Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What's happening, people? It's all Blackademic. We are back. And we're very, very, very excited to be back in front of you guys on your screens. We've been away for a little while. By the way, I'm Jordan, your host, if you didn't know um, by now already. We've been away for a couple of months during the spring period. Um, a couple of months has been very, very challenging and testing for members of our community for a variety of different reasons. Um, and because of many of those reasons, COVID and many of the, the murders, and I will call them murders because I'm not bound by any regulations to uh lie and say things that it's not they were murders of our brothers and sisters we have now moved into uh the current climate of filming our shows which we'll be doing for the foreseeable future all online which do bring also some great positives as well we can expand our pool of fantastic guests we're going to reach out to as well but the crew have been working very very hard over the last couple of months in trying to uh, come up with some ideas for some really great shows and stuff that's progressive but also trying to always be solution-orientated solution as well. But we do get the current climate. It's been a very, very difficult and emotional time for so many people for a variety of reasons. And we're gonna be exploring some of those things over the coming shows and weeks. But what we aim to do with also Black Academic is to represent the community as best we can, always pushing the culture forward in the direction that we think it needs to be going to as well. Um, my my manners before i get any further i've introduced you to my new friend qb the quarantine beard coming on quite nicely so the two of us we will be presenting the forthcoming shows coming up as well and on that note um let's get into our first show of of, of this new period now i want to have a discussion with my guests on black trauma okay i want to discuss black trauma and the sharing of black trauma we all know that it's been a um, as I mentioned, a triggering and difficult point for so many of our brothers and sisters due to the deaths and murders of our brothers and sisters, both here in the UK, but also in the States as well. And to have this discussion about trauma within the community, I'm joined by Justin Finlayson, who is from United Borders, an award-winning charity which works with young people at risk. I'm also joined by Craig Pinky, who's an urban youth specialist, criminologist and lecturer. And finally, I'm joined by Dr. Roberta Babb, who is a psychologist and a psychotherapist as well. Um, guys, thank you very much for joining me um, on It's All Black Academic today. I really appreciate your time. Is everybody well? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. All good, all good. It's good, good, good to hear. Um, so guys, before we get into the, the, the technicals and the solutions of what trauma in a community um, has led to, I want, I want you to all to kind of put your professional hats to one side for a couple of minutes. And I want you to all tell me about how you feel. 
because before your professionals, you're black men and you're black women. And I'm really interested to just hear over the last couple of months, as I mentioned, it has been such a, a difficult time with some of the high profile murders of our brothers and sisters. I want to hear from you guys, just how you feel as, as black people. I'll, I'll start with yourself, Craig, and then we can move on to uh, Dr. Bab and then bring in Justin. I guess ultimately for me, I don't separate from personal or professional. I'm angry as a black man personally. I'm frustrated, I'm upset. And professionally, I feel exactly the same way. Um, I'm not one of those individuals that, you know, personally I feel a particular way, but then wear a professional hat and act um, different. You know, with the current situation and the things that we've been seeing online globally, around our people, not just necessarily in the Western Hemisphere, but also things that are going on in the East, in places like Africa, and the things that are still taking place around human trafficking and slavery is just another reminder of the kind of the long intergenerational trauma that we've been observing. And it's had me feeling a range of different emotions. And I think the only way to kind of describe it is it feels a little bit like a roller coaster. I hear you. Uh, Dr. Bab, what about yourself? Um, as I was saying, it's really um, difficult. I think it's brought up a lot of emotions, and I think there's something about it being a roller coaster. I think it's a lovely description. It's been intense. Um, it's felt really overwhelming, despairing, sadness, frustration, anger. But I think there's also a bit of hope in the sense that things are being spoken about in maybe ways that they haven't been before, um, but it is incredibly challenging and incredibly exhausting. No, I hear that. And Justin, yourself? Yeah, just to, to, to note on what Dr. Bab said, um, it's been very exhausting, um, very exhaustive, because it's, it's an age-old conversation. It's not nothing new um, in black households throughout the world. It's one of those things where we continually have this conversation, and we're half wondering, when is, when is the other group going to understand and hear and actually stop trying to justify some of these modern day lynchings for what they are, you know, and actually be empathetic to what's actually happening. So, you know, as Craig said, you'd, you'd have any day where, you know, you, you've got a, a roller coaster of emotions. Sometimes I wake up hella optimistic. Other times I just feel like, why am I getting up today? This is not the day to get up. I'm still emotionally processing some of the things that are going on. And I feel like inside might be the better place, but we have to just, you know, tough it out and get back out in the world and try and make a difference. No, I hear it, I hear it. Um, so one of the, th the thing that I would probably say in terms of my emotion personally over this last couple of weeks is I've been emotionally tired, not so much mentally or physically, but spiritually and emotionally tired. The, the, the deaths of Armand Albury, um, Breonna Taylor, um, we've had some here in the UK as well, and obviously George Floyd. It was just, as you said there, Justin, it's, it's, it's once again, it's another black person being murdered um, with impunity. And so one of the things I decided to do was to try and protect my mental health. And one way I decided to do that two or three months back was to stop viewing certain images and videos. So I want to explore that with the three of you. Um, where, where do you guys stand on the sharing of these videos of, as you said there, Justin, you know, modern day lynchings, their murders. Where does everybody stand on the seeing, the visualizing of some of these videos and images of our, our brothers and sisters being at best manhandled, attacked, um, at worst case, murdered? Well, I think it just depends on, um, it depends on the viewpoint, I think, because I, there's, one, there's one side of me which is 
categorically it's like no we shouldn't be sharing images like this they should be pixelated it should be protected etc and i stand by that but at the same time we have to look at why are these images allowed to be viewed and consumed the way that they are because you know when we refer back to isis killings when they were beheading a lot of the foreign nationals that were in iraq and afghanistan etc you'd have to go onto the black net to, to view these killings. They, they weren't readily available. It wasn't something I could watch on GMB whilst I eat my Alpen, I can watch a white person be killed. So we also have to question, why is it that the consumption of black death has become so normalized and just a necessary function within the societies that we live? Because it's not as if to say we have the power to say, actually, can you stop showing that? You know, if it feels any other thing, any other group in this same scenario, it would be handled with a certain amount of sensitivity that people would agree this might not be the thing to witness at eight o'clock in the morning but we've got no protection from that whatsoever so therefore you have got a situation where people where young people are where they are where they're angry but older people feel like they've let down a younger generation because they're still dealing with the same issues from yesteryear you know it just leaves a um, a myriad of emotions but a lot of a lot of me questions why the media seems deems our death a really salient thing to show people at any time, at any time of the day. Craig, are you a, are you a no sharing, or do you see, do you think that are you I'm, someone I'm, that I'm, does? I, I, um, I, I don't I don't like to use the word sitting on the fence, but I everything that Justin said, I agree with it, and I, I sit with that wholeheartedly. I guess the position that I guess I'm in in a position of influence, I kind of share a different perspective in the sense that whilst i understand that our death is solely consumed for one entertainment and two um just people's uh, observations things similar to the the point that the doctor made earlier was that when we talk about the concept of hope is that sometimes people need to recognize and see what's ultimately happening for them to kind of recognize that humanity and human beings are not treating as humans. And when we look at this kind of in a historical context, it's almost like when we talk about um, slavery, for example, or the civil rights movement or prior to the civil rights movement, and there's loads of documentation that talk about kind of murder. And many of us wouldn't be aware of those particular types of incidents if we wasn't shown that imagery in order for us to understand. And whilst I'm a lecturer and I'm an individual that works with children and young people in particular, and I know that imagery is very powerful, imagery can also be used as an opportunity to learn. And it's interesting that with the situation with Joel Floyd, I mean, it reminded me of the Eric Gardner case, but more specifically about George. This man was, that was, was dying for a number of minutes. And this was one of the first indications on camera where they could not justify that particular behavior. And I kind of feel that sometimes that when many of us are trying to explain the plight of our people and talk about injustice and brutality, many of us have to go back to those images and videos in order to demonstrate our argument. So whilst I understand exactly what Justin's talking about, and I'm agreeing with that, it's almost like, what are we using these images ultimately for and how can we use these images and videos in order to push an argument and narrative because it is a historical conversation and it is nothing new. I think I 
I think I'd agree. I think both positions have been really clearly articulated and it is a difficult thing. And I think we have to be thinking about just because we can, should we? And if we do, what's the function of it? I think there's something about actually bringing the humanity back into the police brutality, the racial discrimination, the racial trauma that we're seeing and having to witness. And it's about an awareness of the fact that we can't unsee what we've seen. So we do have to be thoughtful about how it's been displayed, how it's been communicated. Is it gratuitous? Does it have some sort of, you know, underlying function? But the reality is that the paradox of change is you have this before it can change. And I think as black people, our experiences are often questioned. And, you know, think about the idea about racial gaslighting. And I think sometimes you do have to have a real undeniable and reflection of what's happening that can't be debated, that has to be sat with, that has to be experienced and witnessed. And I think that can be a very, very powerful um, influencer. Um, let me stick with you for a second, uh, Dr. Bab. Just talk us through what the kind of long-term psychological impacts of viewing black men and black women being murdered on camera and I want to get to the young people um, with the gentleman in a little bit as well, but just generally as black people, what are the long-term psychological impacts of, you know, week after week, month after month, the sharing? What does that do to, 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 to our psyche? It can be very, very destructive. I mean, we're talking about a traumatic experience. If we think about trauma, especially something like post-traumatic stress disorder, it's not only about experience something, but actually we can be traumatized through witnessing something or hearing about something. So the fact is that this is a sort of impacting so many domains of our life. It's on our televisions, it's on our social media, it's in our conversations. So it's a real sense of kind of being overwhelmed. And I think we can see depression, hopelessness, anxiety, stress, guilt, powerlessness, you know, real sense of anxiousness and helplessness and despair. But also from that can be a sense of people are coming together, people are waking up, and it can be quite unifying, but the experiences are traumatic, and that can have a real impact on our emotional well-being, but also our physiological well-being. So you can think about the instances of high blood pressure, you can think about sleep difficulties, that it is a very complicated experience, but it is a very serious one that happens in a number of different domains. No, I was just saying that, I'll just kind of go on from that in terms of when we're talking about young people, it's almost like they get the ripple effect of those images and those thoughts and feelings from us as adults. So when I talk to children and young people, what I get is frustration, what I get is anger. So when they want to step out on the road and start causing a madness in the streets, I totally understand it because I understand their frustration. It's interesting because I speak to my parents a lot about when they was growing up, what were the kind of the tipping points when they was growing up and my dad talks about roots, when Roots kind of was um, on TV um, and became a series and um, that caught a lot of people's attention, he said that a lot of youth that were growing up in um, Hansworth in the Birmingham area, they kind of took to the streets and started attacking white people at random. And it's interesting because, again, imagery links to two things. One, the pain, and two, the educational element that talks about the history that was oftentimes hidden from us generally by our institutions where we're supposed to learn about who we are and identify who we are as human beings. So when you've kind of got that paradox of one enlightenment, you've also got the anger, 
And unfortunately, we don't have those systems in place to deal with the frustrations and anger. And that may explain or attempt to explain why we see children and young people out on the street moving crazy from the outside looking in because they don't understand what's ultimately going on. And what, what's shown by young people is they've kind of got that rebellious spirit that sometimes they don't understand what they're going through, but they understand injustice. And whereas many adults have kind of been conditioned by default into accepting um, and allowing these kind of um, injustice that have happened historically, it's always been the youth that have been ones to fight for that injustice that we're witnessing every single day in our communities. And is a, is a possible, I don't know, positive, if you like, of the sharing of these videos and imagery that things like the Black Lives Matter movement, and I understand there's a conversation happening between the difference between the organization and the message, but is the sharing and the viralness of these videos of, of black men and women being, being killed and murdered, is it that now, because of that viralness around those videos and imagery, Black Lives Matter and that discussion of valuing black people, respecting black life, is now on the forefront of, of everywhere we go? I mean, it's, it's definitely added and can contextualize how we go about things, how we navigate things. It's also held a microscope to people who have unsavory views, you know, people who are, you know, who would be better fitted in the 50s or the 60s in terms of their viewpoints. It, it, it's been highlighted now that, you know, we're part of a different era. It's a different code. But um, it's one of those ones where I look at these things with, with caution. You know, we've had many awakenings, many arisings in terms of our consciousness, in terms of even movements. You know, we've had more progressive movements yesteryear than what we have right now. So I would caution some of this awakening and it's got to be utilized properly from, from the community in terms of being galvanizing, in terms of being politicized and moving forward and creating a proper safe space for young people because um, at at moment, at best, we, we it doesn't seem like we, we are offering the sort of protections that's necessary to survive in the Western society. You know, it really doesn't feel that way to me at the moment. But, um, and and what are on, they? What, what are they, Justin? Well, just I me. Mean, for me, it's just like your basic human rights. Like if if you've got to have an encounter with with a, with the police, you know, you you like to think that you can come away from that encounter without being murdered. I mean, obviously, the US is a bit more extreme than here, but. In the UK, I've lost three people. My friend's lost his dad. My, I've, I've got another friend that lost his son, you know, and I, another guy I know I've been killed in the police station opposite me. So it's not something that I'm, I'm alien to. The very first funeral I ever went to as a six-year-old or seven-year-old, I believe I was, was my dad's bedroom who was choked out by police and murdered in broad daylight. So it's one of those things where I'm thinking, how is it that something it was almost like a dream when I was seven. It's still a fixed reality now at the age of 42. Like, what's, what's really going on? So sometimes we get this full sense of security that we're making all this progress because, you know, there's Starbucks now. We can eat cheese and, and drink wine with our brethren and, and stuff on a, on, a, on a Tuesday evening. And we kind of get lulled into this full sense of reality. And then I, I, I deal with a lot of young people and they're talking about police as if to say, they, like, like, like Craig said, like they have watched the first edition of Roots and they're like really anti-police and I'm like right what's going on I get to realize I'm a lot older so my my privilege means I can skate past police police don't really look at me as much I'm not really someone that's on their radar as that but when I'm dealing with my young people who are constantly constantly being harassed by police then constantly I mean how that plays itself out 
in how they deal with each other. You know, if I look at my own situation, I mean, my my son was stabbed a number of times, um, wrong place, wrong time, one of those situations. And within four months of that attack, um, police wrote to us to say that the case had been NFA'd, no further action. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is, you know, my ex-wife works in banking. You know, I, I run a youth provision. We are by all, all means, you know, a, a kind of middle-class family, I suppose. But still, when working class things happen, you know, it doesn't matter about what class denomination you belong to, you're quickly reminded that, you know what, the black experience class-wise is no different, you know, it's very different, sorry, to, I believe, the white experience. So, you know, the same things are happening to white people up and down the country in terms of poorer white people being policed a certain way. Mm. Obviously, it's not because they're white, but mm. the solidarity around these issues, I believe, they differ a little bit because if you're black and rich, if you're a black athlete and you win gold for your country, you can be handled the same way a young black person can be, you know? So it's just one of those ones where it, it is pulling me out of a full sense of reality that I have where I've got a certain amount of privilege and young people are the ones that are really having to navigate a lot of police harassment, you know, a lot of the things that are happening right here in this country. That's what the George Floyd scenario reminds me of that we've got big situations here and um let's not hold our head in the sands and act like it's not happening because yeah. it really and i think that one just to kind of just add on to the point that justin just made i think the, the conversation about having as it relates to race is now back on the table and one of the things that we're that many people are now starting to recognize and understand is that when we talk about the system of of racism and the structure and how it functions it impacts us all, regardless if we're poor, regardless if you're coming from a middle-class background, or even if we're from the, the wealthy and powerful, those that are amongst us, it impacts us in all forms of human activity. And I think these are the conversations that I believe that we don't have, because what we do is we observe a number of experiences and incidents, and we oftentimes separate ourselves from that experience. So when we've seen the brother get killed in America, along with another a number of incidents that took place, it reminded us of that situation. So regardless if an individual is thousands of miles away, we're connected to that pain, that hurt. And one of the things that we don't talk about is how, as how racism functions within Great Britain. So we look at the American experience and we say, well, that's quite over in the conversations and the expressions around race and the, the divide of race within America and the, the emotions that are ultimately around that. But within a British context, it's covert and it's interesting because like Justin just said, from the age of six years old, and I remember being age of six and seven, and also a similar situation happened of a member of my family. And it's been that continual conversation. But within Great Britain, it, it's more of a covert conversation about racism. And we always kind of play this standoff kind of scenario where it only happens over there. So yes, America mm. may have guns. Yes, they may play in their in their um, media channels every single day. But just like here, we can talk about hundreds of men in all of the cities that have been strangled by the police and killed, that have so-called committed suicide whilst they've been in police custody. Individuals that have been sectioned under the Mental Health Act have been attacked yeah. and harmed mm. by the police. And there's numerous of young people that are being not necessarily just harassed, but also being sexually and violently um, assaulted by police officers. But because we don't complain, because we don't um, 
hold people accountable, it just becomes a conversation that exists within our community, but doesn't exist within their realm. And these are the fundamental yeah, yeah. things that I believe that now, going back to what the doctor said earlier, is that now we have this opportunity now to have a conversation that we probably never had before within Great Britain. And Dr. Bab, let me go back to, you referenced uh, gaslighting. But for, for those who may be watching this, who don't fully understand what that is, what that looks like, just talk us through you know, what you mean. And that kind of plays off the back, I suppose, of Craig, Craig's point there. Just talk us through what you meant by gaslighting. I think with um, racial gaslighting, it's really about people having, uh, starting to doubt their own experiences. So you may say something about how you've experienced an interaction or observation, and actually someone going, you know, a white person saying, actually, I didn't mean it that way, or it wasn't that way, or that's not what I meant. And so then we're in a situation where we start to doubt our own experiences. And I think that's what I was saying earlier about sometimes it's really important to have some real objective data or evidence about the experience, because I think black people's experiences are questioned. They're totally, you know, they're demoted, they're minimized, they're tried to be explained away. And then it becomes that we've said something or we're making too much of it, or it's something that doesn't need to be taken seriously. And it really does, does need to. And let me stick with you, Dr. Bab. Um, I'm really also interested mm -hmm. in the, the, the impacts of desensitizing violence to young people. Now, for, for the last five, 10 years, there have been video games out, for example, that have been extremely violent. And there's been discussions around whether young people should be, they're even R rating and X 18 rating some of these video games now. Is the sharing of certain videos of black men and black women being murdered, being lynched, that goes around on platforms that young people are frequenting, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever, is this just another dangerous, the next level of the desensitizing and the normalizing of gratuitous violence? And it's just, this time it's, it's, it's black, black men and black women. I think it goes along a continuum because I think, you know, the more you see something, the more you have to protect yourself, which means you take it back in your mind. If, as you're saying, it becomes normal. It becomes just another image. And then you kind of get disconnected because it could be a movie and you forget that actually it's real people. So I think it's a, it's a very difficult continuum to navigate. And it is about helping people to have spaces where they can talk about what it feels like to see these images, what it brings up in them, how they connect with it. Because I think a lot of young black people, especially young black men, you know, there's so much violent unity. There's so much violence in the global world. There's so much violence on the Internet. that Actually, they're having real life experiences where when they leave the house, they may not come home. And that is terrifying. And we all deal with anxiety in different ways. And one way is to suppress it, to numb it, to go, go against it and actually be defiant to think I'm not going to be a person. But it is a really scary reality. Things are changing in ways that actually feel quite uncontrollable and really quite dangerous. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think one of the things that kind of links to, to the, uh, the, the point that was just made was that we live in a violent society and we, we kind of sometimes, when we have conversations about violence, we kind of put things in its compartment you know, Great Britain or the West as a whole has been the foundation is violence. And we see violence manifest in so many different types of ways. So when we're having a conversation about racism, racism is also linked to that violence because it was violence that was used in order sub to subdue um, peoples of color. And I think when we then talk about kind of the, 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 the desensitization of young people in particular, you know, we can look at Hollywood, we can look at, you know, Rockstar, we can look at Netflix and all of these things are just byproducts of a wider society and a system that talks about racism all the time. So I would argue that our young people are already desensitized and when they kind of come into contact with the issue of race, because they see it from their own lens, that's the reason why they're triggered in a slightly different way to when they may watch a film and see somebody shooting against each other because they can't connect to that reality. But when they see an individual that comes from their ends, comes from their block, comes from their estate, get killed in the same type of way, it kind of unpicks or connects to a historical trauma that oftentimes we've never had the opportunity to explore and have that opportunity to heal. No, I hear it. Um, does, it does anybody feel that, um, you know, I've been to all the pro most of the London protests during this period, and there's lots of sh chanting and slogans that have been very, very powerful and very personal. Um, and that seems to have translated into hashtags and some kind of at least virtual movement. Does anybody feel that campaigns such as Say Her Name are actually more impactful than the sharing of the videos themselves? Uh, uh, I think the unfortunate thing here is, is that um, black women who have been killed uh, are kind of been lost in the source somewhat because a lot of the focus tend to be on heterosexual black men. Um, and it is one of those ones where say her name is, is, it is very necessary. Um, I just think that more needs to be done in that area in terms of, you know, Brianna Taylor, got Belly as well, who was obviously killed here. As much as I appreciate, and I think it's very important to acknowledge the extrajudicial killings in America by police, it's also equally important to remember people like Belly, you know what I mean? Who was killed at work, who actually remonstrated with her manager that she didn't want to be on the front line. They had office space. She wanted to be in the office. She was denied the opportunity. She was spat on by somebody with COVID and she was killed, you know? And her coworker was also injured by that same incident. So where I think that the 
co-adoption of America's problem has been, you know, very, very useful. It's been beautiful to witness. The same won't happen in reverse. Belly's name won't pop in America. You know what I mean? Like Mark and et cetera, the names are not going to pop over there. So this is where we need to kind of, at the same time, utilize the moment to focus on what's happening here. You know, and it's it's one of those ones where culturally America's always been a, a great cultural leader. I just feel that some of the energy needs to be used for a lot of the injustices that are currently act, act, acting out itself here. If we look at even the deaths in COVID, disproportionately killed, it's us again. When we look at the government holding back information on, you know, to the deaths related to COVID, you know, there's so many interesting things happening here that's affecting us right now. And I just feel that, you know, if we're going to talk, say her name, I should instantly also be thinking about Belly. You know, it shouldn't always be I'm thinking about Rihanna, which is important. Of course it is. But I should be thinking about the injustice that's on my doorstep that needs to be challenged and changed. And I think that's really important. And I think one of the things that I think is coming quite strongly through this conversation is that actually racism needs to be put in the context of history. And I think we are, you know, we need to be thinking about what is black British history. It's very different to American history. They talk about, you know, colonialization It's very, very different. And I think that needs to be taught in schools. That needs to be more widely spoken about because that's the context within which we're living. That's the parameters within which we're experiencing racism. And that's the parameters that actually have to be part of the conversations in thinking about taking things forward and thinking about things differently. I think it's just very important though, we, sorry, that we, we also stay angry a lot, you know, because like anything, you've you got any breakup of a relationship, you know, there's, there's, there's some songs that you would have heard. And if you are going through, a, 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 if you've gone through the, 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 break, the breakup of that relationship, you hear that song even now, and it resonates a certain way, if that makes sense. All of these things that we're witnessing, all these lynchings that we're witnessing, people think that we see these things in isolation. No, we don't. We're connected to it all, you know? And it's just like, I just really believe that now's the time for us to literally come together, unify together and and actually make the, the changes which are necessary decolonizing history etc but very important if you're angry and you want to stay in your anger don't let no one push you out of it for now when you're ready to move mm. from that phase you'll move from it but don't let mm. people tell you right now it's not about anger it's about solutions no no, no i just want to be angry if i woke up stressed i, I want to stay stressed i woke up depressed i want to be in my depression mode for a bit. I don't feel like I need to move on. Why do I need to move on? Before that makes sense. So it's, I just feel it's, like it's, it's, but but is to push back on that? Is that not yeah. then detrimental to us trying to push forward to get to solutions? I agree no. that people should be able to feel how they feel. Mm. But if yeah. if you kind of even almost stew in the fact that no, I want to be vexed because I'm vexed. Mm. People are being murdered. Does mm. that not then prevent the idea of then getting through the next phase, which is all right? I'm, I'm angry now. The next phase is I, th I, 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 I think I, th I think yes and I think yes and no. But that's yeah. part of our healing too. If you look at it from a historical context, when we were raped and we were enslaved and we were treated like three fifths of a human being, we were told to go back to work the following day. We were told <laughs> to just forget about it and move on. We never had a, yeah. an opportunity to feel, to, to grieve, to go through it. We're talking about, you know, men that were castrated. We're talking about women and their breasts were removed. We're talking about women that were raped. We're talking about fathers and brothers having to witness a mother or a sister be taken and mistreated in a particular type of way. 
We're also talking about the way that, you know, men were treated, the way that women were treated, and how they oftentimes the, the, the entertainment purposes of individuals was to put people against each other. And we was never given that opportunity to heal, to grieve. So I understand in context that, yes, it is about solutions. But if I'm angry, allow me to be angry just for five minutes. Don't tell me about solutions until I come to terms with the fact and the reality that I need to process my emotions. And from a historical context, just in conclusion, we've always been told we just need to move on. We need to go to solutions. But I can't arrive to a solution if I'm still very emotive about a situation. So that also links to the therapy that I think is really important to our mental health because that would assist us in overcoming and essentially dealing with or coming to contact with those emotions that are linked to our traumatic experiences that then we can have more better and effective solutions as opposed to reactive ones. Dr. Bab, I, I take I take uh, Craig's point completely there um, about about processing how you feel and not being forced to rush into the next phase of what, what is next. Totally at that point. But how damaging mentally could it be to to stay in that in that place of anger, frustration and, and pain? I think that's a really difficult thing to answer because I think everybody heals at different rates. And I think before you can move forward, you have to have your own victimization recognized and seen by someone else. And that's incredibly important in the healing process. Like I think both Mark and um, Justin are saying, I think the thing that we're also trying to say is that it's important to find a balance between, you know, accepting how you're feeling and giving space to that, but also moving forward. And we also have to think about actually, it can feel like it's holding us back, but we can't do anything before the emotions have been processed. And it is about how do we process something so we can let it go and not feel that we're forced to just put it down and ignore and dismiss it, because that means it hasn't been processed or resolved. And you know we're destined to repeat the same things unless they've been resolved. And that's really, really important. So there has to be space for it. And I think that's why therapy is so, so important in giving a voice a name, a language, a story to our experiences that can then be understood and taken back in a different way. Was anybody else surprised at how surprised white people were at how black people are being treated and killed? On the back of the George Floyd uh, murder, I just saw so, so many white people, oh my God, I, that was so brutal. That was just that was out of order. I didn't. I had no idea. No, this is so bad. This is wrong. And I'm like, you've been for the last bit, hundreds of years. This. Why are you surprised? This is not yeah. the first time it's happened. Was anybody else surprised? And that level of white, I suppose, realization, for want of a better phrase. How do we channel that to actually try and move forward? To actually, okay, now you do get it. Now you are seeing how we're treated. Yeah. What What are you going to do about it? I'm not surprised. And the reason why I'm not surprised is because I am very clear in the understanding of the system of white supremacy. And that particular system enables them to be cognitive dissonant to our reality. So I'm not surprised. It's designed for the purpose for them to not see us as human beings. So when we're talking about the concept of humanity, what these particular recent incidents have allowed um, to happen is for people to now not be able to justify the reason and the rationale of why that individual was taken. Because if you look at it in history, let's go back to lynching. There was always a reason, you know, that an individual looked at a woman, an individual spoke out a turn. There was always a reason why that individual was able to be taken 
from us, from our communities, and that was justified and it was kind of seen as just a kind of normal type of behavior. But now we're kind of in a particular space where that argument now can't be utilized in this particular context. So whilst you have individuals that are surprised, you've got some individuals now where they have to now be accountable to these particular type of behaviors because people are now starting to find their voice in a different type of way. So where social media becomes important because now you can drive these particular narratives and these particular images in order to um, hold people accountable to these particular types of images. And that kind of links to the first original part of the conversation about sharing. And that was what my, my argument was, just kind of coincide with the argument that Justin was presenting, was that I see the, the, the purpose of imagery um, in the context of understanding. Nothing surprises me anymore. Um, I think it, it's more healthy for me to assume that if you haven't done anti-racism work on yourself, then you're probably racist. You're, you're, you've been indoctrinated into a racist system. You know, we're talking about decolonizing education. It's a key part of it. You, as you know, three fifths, not really a human. It's always so. Before when I had these kind of conversations, honestly, I I could have I could have lost here as as a result. But a lot of these conversations was well, well, what do they do? And why did that happen? And I was always like, what? What do you mean, why? What do you mean, what did they... Are you serious? Someone was just... Tamir Rice, what, he had a gun. Yeah, but if it looked like... And I was like, oh my God. So the racial gaslighting, I've gone through all of that. Because we've had, I don't know, maybe 10 years of this. 10 years of killings on camera. Since, since mm. I think, since Obama came into power, that's when a lot of the killings became a, a visual thing to almost remind us of our position. So... I was always getting caught up in these weird arguments and I'm thinking, hold on, why am I exhausted? What's going on? What, why am I still trying to justify humanity? What's going on? So I've had so many of those conversations that now I'm just like, mm. oh, now you've turned up to the party. Well done. You're, you're 10 years late mm. or 100, but you're here now. That's the, that's the main thing. Mm. And you're not here because you, you, you became enlightened. What's happened is, is that as Ray pointed out as well, that there is a lot of social media, there's a lot of narrative being controlled by black Twitter, etc. There's a lot of white youths growing up who are now on the staple of black culture. So they understand things, you know, in a way where their parents were a bit more a bit embarrassed by my parent. They understand things in a different way. They understand certain incidents in a different way now because they're aligned with a culture, if that makes sense. So when we look at the youths who are tearing down statues in Bristol and Colston, people think that this is just a freak incident. It just happened. No, you know, along those People are lobbying to get the slave statue taken down. You know how much channels are witnessed about Colston and the statue being up there, etc. That you get some white youths who are like, well, actually, why are you not leaving it up there? You know, it's a different generation. They don't understand police and all the rest of it. No, no, we'll just rip it down. They deal with police consequences mm. after. But we know full well, if we go near the statue, we're looking at a couple of years in prison. We still got youths in jail in Birmingham because one person shot a helicopter and all five people were there and they got life sentences. What's going on there? Yeah. So it's just one of those ones that we understand the context of legality so well. We understand legal loopholes because we've been, you know, we've been fighting them forever. Whereas white, some white, particularly young white people, they don't understand the consequences. So they don't understand this whole patience thing. And what are you not being patient for? It's time for pushback right now. And personally, I'm proud that there's young people, particularly around the young people, around the marches that you was talking about. I, I went out there and got so much energy and invigorated by 19 year old 18 year olds who were just throwing up um, hashtags for black lives and organizing massive protests protests bigger than i've ever seen and mm -hmm. it kind of does leave me hopeful
Oh, but I'm really surprised by the white community. What gives me hope is that we've got a younger white community who are on the staple of what we're on and they're willing to make the changes and force certain conversations through with their adult peers. So not surprised, but it's just the work needs to continue. We cannot for one second believe that just because they've witnessed something horrific and they've seen an eight minute horrific piece that they're going to all of a sudden be able to relate to the 400 years of horrific intergenerational trauma that I've had to uh, you know, walk with to navigate myself in this society. So let me let me ask you, Dr. Bab, I mean, with, with that realization among some white people, the veil has been lifted and they're finally seeing now, not all, but some are finally seeing now the truth of how we've been treated and murdered for, for, for years upon years. How important is that in trying to actually get change? How important is it that some and sections of white people actually now, okay, oh, all right, for whatever reason, however they arrived here, they're now here and they now see and get why we've been so angry for so long. How, how important is that in, in terms of getting actual uh, racial and social uh, justice? It's very important. I mean, I think part of what we're, we're talking about is actually when you bring in the humanity, you bring back the empathy. And when you bring back the empathy, then the human scene. And I think then people can begin to think about things differently because it's actually about humans, not just images on a screen that we don't actually have any connection to. But I think one of the things that I wanted to bring in, which is I think within the context of coronavirus, I think everybody is feeling particularly vulnerable, fragile and um, uncertain because the world as we know it has changed. So I think there's also something about white people having to sit and experience, you know, maybe a little bit of what black people experience in terms of the uncertainty yeah. of the world, in terms of having, you know, things done to you and having to work against power structures and having your liberty, you know, restricted. And so I think it's really important because we're harnessing something. We can't say it's done, it's the beginning of something, but we're harnessing something where it is about the humanity and then change. We don't need any more data. We know what's going on. We need to bring people together to think collectively together about viable solutions that make a difference. The danger is a lot of rewarding, over-rewarding though at the moment. That's what I'm, I, I look at these things quite carefully. Like why are they almost, why is everyone on it, right? What's, what's going on? It seems like it's been amplified to a very loud level. And in a minute, you know, in a minute, everything's just going to go back to the status quo. Once everything opens back up again, people can get back to their normal lives. And that, that could just be a moment. Is, as, is, is, that, what, is that what you think is going to happen, Justin? Do you think this is more of a moment than a movement? Do you think by no, the end of the year... Me, for me, it's a movement. No, for me, it's a movement. For me, it's a, okay. it's a way I like it. There is, there is no other, there is no other way for, back, to be honest with you. It's only forward. But... When you hear our momentum being referred to as a, a moment by Kia Starmer, et cetera, when, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm on social media, right? So I'm dealing with a lot of people who are now tired of all this Black Lives Matter stuff. Like, what is this? And these guys are unruly. You're not really listening to, listening to police. You're going out there en masse, drawing um, a lockdown, et cetera. So I am also seeing that turning of the tide from white people who've had enough of not all of them, but some a good majority of white people had enough of all of this change and progression and all this conversation I'm not really ready to have right about now because my privilege is still firmly in place and I'm not ready to go against my cognitive dissonance, if that makes sense. So I'm very um, aware that we are also in a certain crescendo where people are actually tired of hearing about us, you know? We've got enough centre stage as far as a lot of people are concerned.
So just just to wrap, I'm going to ask you all, all three of you the, the same question, a personal one. If you guys were out and about and you witnessed an uh, an attack, a murder, would you film it? Would you film it and would you share it? What what would you do if you were you were there and you saw another black man or black woman being manhandled by a police officer and it was really really going badly wrong and you could see what was coming? Would you get your phone out and film and record? that that incident well um sad to say you know i'm a i'm a, I'm a charity owner i'm res responsible for my own sons and daughter i'm responsible for a lot of young people i'm always getting young people to question their actions and question their reactions particularly to certain things my son in particular you know after he went through what he went through i never had to worry if he'd respond a certain way because the, the response from the family has always been firm you know we've always been a tight family so i knew he had enough to get past to get past his moment however with all that being said and done personally if i had to witness someone in george floyd situation rihanna taylor situation for me i, I just uh, wherever they're going is probably where it's probably going to be where i'm going to go you understand because me filming someone dying it just goes completely against the my, my my human principles to let that person live and it's probably irresponsible to put myself in harm's way it's something that's happened on more than one occasion uh, i've done it not never for myself always for other people i put myself in harm's way but i couldn't i couldn't rest knowing that my contribution to that is filming it and that's not being um negative to the, to the person that filmed it because George Floyd's death hasn't been in vain. It means that people are progressing and pushing for change, right? But it's just me personally filming something like that. No one should be in that position, but I feel like I'd have to physically try and remove someone from that situation, you know? I hear it, Dr. Bab. It's a very difficult one. So I think there's something about it not being gratuitous. And I think it, you know, it would only need to be, need to be filmed once. I mean, I think I don't know what I'll do in that situation. I think that is a very scary, traumatic situation. And I think the fight, flight or freeze response will kick in. And I'm not sure. But I would like to think that I could still be able to have some impact in terms of naming something, trying to stop something, you know. But I don't know if I would film it because I think like Justin's saying, you know, this is a human being who is fighting for their life. And it is really, really painful. And I, I don't know. I really don't know. Craig? I think it's, a, it's probably one of the most difficult questions as well for me. Um, because all of these are traumatic experiences. Um, and in any traumatic experience, we don't know how we're going to respond in that particular situation. That traumatic experience may ignite or trigger a series of things, you know, for you. So for some people that are going to run, some people are just going to end up shouting and some people video. I would like to think for myself that I kind of stand on the, sh the, the shoulders of our radical thinkers. And I would like to say that, you know, the price of freedom is death. So if that means that I need to be physically involved in that in order to stop an individual from killing another human being, because it's the right thing to do, then I'd like to believe that I'm one of those types of individuals. But in the moment, you just never know. 
Um, and I think that's our reality, that we would all kind of like to be in a situation where we are preventing these scenarios and situations from happening. But the ultimate question is, is are you prepared to lose your life? Because that's what it would take. And in an American context, they most likely would either shoot or, or strangle you. And in a British context, you also might get choked out in that process too. So it's important that when we're having these conversations to not kind of give these kind of um, superhero kind of responses as, you know, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to respond because this is not just one incident. There's been multiple incidents where our people have protested, our people have tried to fight against injustice and in turn have lost their lives. And I think that we're in a space now where we're having better conversations, even if it's just amongst ourselves, about what do we do in those particular scenarios. So we can't be the type of individuals to, to tell children and young people not to behave a certain type of way. But in that same instance, we then turn around and say that we are going to do A, B, C, and D. So in conclusion for me, I think, you know, that saying the price of freedom is death. And I would like to think that I'm an individual that is going to lay my life down for a brother or a sister that is going through any inhumane treatment by our, our oppressors. Um, listen, guys, a, a really um, difficult conversation to have, but I think a very, very important one that's necessary that I'm noticing having been had on so many platforms amongst our community. I, I do feel hopeful. I know there are some people that are cynical that nothing will change and this will just be a phase. I, I'm a bit more um, hopeful and optimistic about actual change happening. I think we've, we've, we've hit a crossroads now where things have to change. And alongside these conversations, we have to back it up with action. And all the work that you guys are doing is, is fantastic. So I want, to I want to thank all you guys, Justin, Craig, and Dr. Roberta Bab. Thank you very much for coming on uh, our platform. Um, everybody watching and listening to this, don't forget to check out more of our content. We're across all the socials as well. But check out all of our content and a bit about the team behind uh, the production here, blackademic.com. Uh, until next week, stay well, take care of your people then, and peace. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.